Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, loved ones, what a, what a sincere joy it is to be worshiping with you all again. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5 and going all the way to verse 13. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, put your hand up right now. Our ushers would like to put one in your lap. Matthew chapter 6, 5 to 13. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please keep that as a free gift from us to you to encourage you to study God's Word at home. Well, our theme for this year, if you remember, the theme for this ministry year comes from Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, and it is, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this highlights a crucial truth that is going to be the thread for all that we do, Lord willing, this ministry year, and as long as Hope Ottawa exists, And it's quite simply this, you'll see it on the screen, write it down, highlights that the work of God is only accomplished by the power of God. The work of God is only, can only be accomplished by the power of God. Here's what we need to understand from today. Without prayer, we are dead. I'll say it again. Without prayer, we are dead. E.M. Bounds put it this way to describe that. He said, Nothing is well done for the kingdom of God without prayer. For the simple reason that it leaves God out of the account. Prayerlessness leaves God out of the account. There is nothing well done for the kingdom of heaven without prayer. This is why God says in Isaiah, he says, my house shall be called a house of programs. Uh, Our house, God's house, should be called a house of personalities. Nope. God says, my house shall be called a house of one thing, and that is prayer. Because nothing is well done for the kingdom of God without it. Because the power of God, the work of God, is only accomplished by the power of God. And that is why we will see today, and it's such a core distinctive of This church right here, Old Bible Church Ottawa, you'll see it at the top of this banner to my right, that by his spirit, we must pray fervently. By the Holy Spirit's power at work in God's people, we must pray fervently. The word fervently doesn't mean, hey God, you know, I'll pray when I get around to it. You know, I'll do my thing, and then if it doesn't work out, I'll call on your name. No, no, no. Fervently means intensity. There's some heat in the furnace of prayer. It means to be zealous in prayer, not flippant about prayer. Why? Write this truth down. Because prayerless churches are powerless churches. 
Prayerless churches are powerless churches, and that is designed by God himself. Otherwise, we would shift all our dependence to ourselves to try to do what only God can in building his church. So we got to be on the same page as to what we're talking about when we talk about prayer. There's a lot of different people here from a lot of different backgrounds. You'll see it on the screen, what we see from God's word here. The people of God seeking the presence of God being filled with the power of God to behold the purposes of God. When you look at the systematic theology of prayer all throughout Scripture and how God uh, describes it and has designed it, it boils right down to this. The people of God seeking the presence of God, being filled with the power of God, to behold the purposes of God. One of my seminary profs, Rick Reed, He said it this way, I love it. He said, prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. Prayer is intimacy with God. God's not just some genie that we kind of rub the lamp and say, hey Lord, can you hook a brother up when we need something? Prayer is intimacy with God that leads to the fulfillment of his purposes. This is why, as Ian Bounds goes on to say, he says, the most important lesson we can learn is how to pray. The most important lesson in our lives you or I could learn is how to pray. And this highlights a crisis in the church today. Why is this message so important? Why is a culture of prayer A praying church, so important, because there's a crisis in the church, and it's the absence of true, fervent prayer. Prayer, make no mistake, loved ones, will be the first thing to go. Prayer is so easily distracted from, isn't it? Rush, 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 rush. Got to do this. It's on me. Got to run this. And maybe I'll ask God for help after. Maybe I'll invite him into that later. Or quite often we think we're too busy to pray. If we're too busy to pray, the truth is, loved ones, we're too busy. We think we're too busy to pray that somehow prayer is a lesser work for the tasks and and duties that we have in front of us. You say, wait, are we not supposed to do those things? Here's where we're missing the mark here when we think like that. We have to understand this. Prayer is not the foe to the work. Prayer is not an adversary against work. It does not paralyze activity, Ian Bounds goes on to say. But prayer works mightily. Prayer itself is the greatest work. Prayer itself is the greatest work. God can do, you ever realize this, loved ones? God can do more in five seconds than you and I can in 50 years of trying on our own effort. Prayer is the greatest work. I got some good news for us today. It's a big idea for our text. Write it down. Jesus has taught us how to pray. Maybe some of you are here and you're like, well, I don't know how to pray. I've never, you know, I got some ideas and kind of trying to pick things up. And how do I learn how to pray if this is God's heart and his desire? 
and the work of God is not accomplished, the presence of God is not known, how do we pray? Well, good news, Jesus has taught us how to pray and we must imitate him. Jesus, the most fervent prayer warrior who ever lived, has taught us how to pray. And we must imitate him. And so today in our text, we're gonna look at one of the most well-known yet most misunderstood passages in all of Scripture, the Lord's Prayer. And here, Jesus gives us the final word. He gives us the final word on how to pray and how not to pray. And we see two postures, loved ones, that we must increasingly embrace if we are to see God's presence, his power, his glory, increasingly through the prayers of his people. Ready to go? There's so much at stake. Let's tune in tonight. Open your Bibles. Kids, open your Bibles. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word, and we will read it together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 13. Let's go, Hope Ottawa. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hear the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So good to hear you reading scripture together, loved ones. Mm, love it. All right, first off, Jesus has taught us how to pray, and we must pray with a single motivation. What is the single motivation for why we pray? A life of fervent prayer prays with a single motivation, and that is God's heart. It's God's heart. See, God will reward those who humbly seek him. Question, are you posing or pursuing? It's a cutting question. Are you posing in prayer or pursuing him? Let's get our context. Context is key. We're on a mountain on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. See a picture there? I was standing right on that mountain when I used to live in Israel. And it's every bit as beautiful as you see there and so much more. And it's called the Mount of Beatitudes. 
the Mount of Beatitudes. And Jesus has just recently begun his public ministry, teaching in and around the Galilee area to his disciples and to countless others who are now following him. And now, now right here in Matthew 6, in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. Do you think it's a coincidence, loved ones, that in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the very heart, the very center of it, starts in chapter 5 at the beginning, ends at the end of chapter 7? And do you think it's any coincidence that in the center of the most important sermon ever preached, he lands on prayer. No, everyone say no. It's the center, it's the heartbeat. And here Jesus is instructing us on how to pray in a way, the way that manifests God's presence and power for advancing his kingdom in and through the lives of his people. Let's get to it. Verse five and six, go back to the text. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret, look at this promise, will reward you. Now, I want you to notice how verses 5 and 6 start. Did you get that? Those three words? Go back to the text. You see it? It says, when you pray. When you pray. Notice it doesn't say, if you pray. If you feel like praying and you're in the mood. Once you've exhausted all your own efforts, and then maybe you go to prayer. It says, when you Pray. See, this is Christ's expectation of every true follower of his is that they would be devoted fervently to prayer and have it as a normal practice in their everyday lives. This is why 1 Thessalonians 5.17, if you flip over to that, you'll see it says, pray without ceasing. That means pray and don't stop. Stay in the intimate communion with the Lord at all times and in all things. And Jesus goes on to say here that when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites standing on the street corners and in synagogues, posturing themselves and making public displays of their prayers. Okay, let's get some clarity. Who's he talking about here? Well, in Jewish culture, even to this day, they have three set times of prayer. In the morning, in the afternoon, And in the evening, where Jews would stop what they're doing and they would pray. Whether they're at work, they'd stop and pray. Whether they're on the street corner, they'd stop and pray. Whether they're in the synagogue, they just stop and pray. And the problem here that grew was that the religious leaders, especially, would use this time to put on a display. Notice verse 5. What's the term he uses to describe them? Starts with an H. What is it? Hypocrites. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. The word hypocrite there in the Greek means a performer under a mask. You're performing under a mask, used to describe actors on a stage, putting on a show with their prayers. He's referring to anyone Not just the religious leaders here, but anyone whose desire was to seek the glory from man. How good can I look when I pray? 
How good. The big words I use, the tones I use. They're seeking the glory from man and not to seek the heart or the glory of God. In essence, Jesus says, they're posers. I see the heart. They're posing. And Jesus states, yes, God sees their hearts. They aren't desirous for him. And he says that as a result, notice this, they've received their reward. You want the glory of man? That's all you want? That's all you get. That's all you get. They've received their reward in full. That's what you're after? Fine. You don't get me. I will not show you my glory. Rather, notice in verse 6, go back to the text. It's so, so sobering. Jesus says that those who truly desire the heart of God, what do they do? They are to humble themselves and go into the secret place. Go into the, that, that means inner room there in verse 6. Go into the inner room. Shut the door. No applause. No one watching. Just you and the Lord. And God will, look at the promise, God will reward them. Now let's get some clarity here. You say, wait a sec, then why do we have church-wide prayer nights? Why do we come to gather corporately as the church? I mean, didn't he just say, don't do that? No. Jesus is not forbidding praying in groups. Jesus is not forbidding here praying in public. Notice Matthew 18, 20, if you're wondering. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am, right? He's not forbidding praying in groups or in public, but he's targeting the heart. Doesn't Jesus always go back to the heart? He always does. He's targeting the heart, the internal desire or the motivation for why you are praying. Why are you praying? And the secret, why the secret place? Why does he love the secret place so much? Because it allows the person, you shut the door. Think about this. You walk into a room, you shut the door. It allows the person to focus exclusively on seeking the Lord. Shut the phone off. Turn it away. No noise. Open your Bible. You and the Lord together. Seeking the Lord and removes the distraction and temptation to posture oneself for the praise of man. The secret place, the place where God reveals himself, that's the reward he is. Jesus says right here, prayer is to be the pursuit of God for communion with God. What's your motive for prayer? Why you pray? Just look at your prayer, prayer life. Over the last month, what's your motivation? Was it God's heart? Is it the glory of God, the heart of God? What's mine? This is a heart check, loved ones. See, the purpose of prayer is not primarily to get anything else from God. The purpose of prayer is to get God himself. That's the ultimate purpose of prayer. God himself. He's not a genie. We just kind of rub and say, throw it down, will you? Bail me out. And prayer is never, hear the word of the Lord, prayer is never to be used as a means for increasing one's reputation. No side glances. Who's watching? Who can I sound really good in front of and use some big theological term to impress? No side glances, single Focus. You know what Jesus is calling out here? He's calling us to 
a life of uncommon communion. Uncommon communion. Extended times of prayer. Behold him, seeking the glory of God. One thing I ask, one thing I will seek. That I would be in the presence of the Lord. You have said, seek my face. My heart says, yes, Lord, your face do I see. That's the goal. See, think about this. How, how much of this posturing is happening right now in this world around us? Lots of people pray, right? Lots of people pray. But maybe even in this room, are you approaching God with a divided desire? One eye on him and then another on yourself. How do I look? What will people think? What can I get from God Or what can I get from others? Be very careful, loved ones. This can happen so subtly as pride creeps in. Why we're doing, it turns into a performance. See, God will reward those who humbly seek him. Question, are you posing or pursuing? Are you posing before God or actually pursuing his heart? Pursuing the heart of man, the desires of the flesh, or pursuing the heart of God? And you say, well, how do I know? Well, he knows. So what do we need to do? Ask him. Say, God, search me. Search me, oh God. Search my motives. Even right now, just close your eyes and just pray this prayer. Search my heart, oh God. And test my anxious thoughts. And see where the offensive ways are in me. And lead me in the path everlasting. Where is my motivation not desirous of your heart? Where am I going for your hand? over your heart? Where am I going for the glory of man over your glory? Just ask him and he'll reveal it. He will. In public, where am I doing that? In private. Lord, help my prayer to be increasingly God-oriented and not self-oriented. See, Jesus has taught us how to pray and we must pray with a single motivation. He called it out right here. What's the motivation? His heart. The heart of God. See, if we approach God going after his heart, then he gladly opens his hand. But if all we go for is the hand of God, provide for me this, do this for me, give me this, help me with this, then we are in so much danger of missing his heart. The whole purpose of uncommon communion. And from this, we see that a life of fervent prayer prays with a holy distinction. What's the distinction of prayer to Jesus Christ, of a prayer for, to anyone else? It is that we are praying solely for God's glory. See, a prayer of distinction is a prayer for God's glory, not self-glory. That makes us distinct. Prayer for God's glory, not self-glory. Question, whose glory are you seeking? Flows right out of those first two verses. Now look at 7 and 8. Go back to the text. Jesus starts it off again. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need. Oh, isn't that amazing? Just I'm going to read that again. Eyes in the text. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. There's no need to posture. 
See, after instructing the people to seek after God's heart as their single motivation, their single desire in prayer, Jesus now instructs us on the model of prayer that God has given us and will respond to. And he says here in verses 7 and 8 that when we approach God in prayer, we are not to just heap up, heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. The term empty phrases there in verse 7, circle it, it means long-winded with empty repetitions of words over and 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 over again. Long-winded, empty phrases. Now, who are the Gentiles he's talking about here? These are pagans who worship other gods, other so-called gods who regarded the, notice this, remember from our Elijah series, who regarded the length of their prayers as the way to ensure that their gods listened to them. Remember on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, there's the prophets of Baal. How long did they call on Baal for? Oh, Baal, answer us all day. And they were screaming and yelling. And then when that didn't work, they went into this ecstatic state where they start cutting themselves to try to rouse the sympathy of their God. So he would hear again and again and again. Means greater length, they believed, would be the greater response from their God. Oh, you're really serious. Okay saying the same empty words and phrases over and over again, using holy tones when they pray. Holy tones. You see it all the time around us. All the time. But Jesus says, did you get it in verse 8? He says, commands us, do not be like them. That means don't make the same error as them. Let's get some clarity here, because maybe some of you are like, wait a second, I thought Jesus loves persistent prayer. To come after him again and again and again. Well, he does, loved ones. Jesus is not shooting down persistent prayers from a fervent heart that desire him. Remember how in Luke 18, 1 to 8, he commended the parable of persistent widow? as a model for how we should pray, continue to approach, continue to approach, don't stop. We are called to be persistent and fervent and persevere in prayer. Look at Ephesians 6.18, right on our distinctives banner there. It says this, praying at all times in the spirit, by his spirit we pray fervently, with all prayer and supplication to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance. Come after him. Keep coming, making supplication for all the saints. What Jesus is saying here, he's saying, stop reciting words for the sake of words and keep it simple. Your father knows what you need. Stop reciting for the sake of reciting. Keep it simple according to my word. Why? Verse eight, because your father knows what you need before you ask him, right there where you are right now. I don't know all of your situations and what you're facing. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a, a spiritual, a sin issue. Maybe it's a provisional issue. Whatever it is, your father knows what you need. If you are saved in Jesus Christ, listen, you are God's child. And he is a good father. 
And he knows what you need and when you need to have it. You don't have to earn that by the length and complexity of your prayers and loud repetitions. He knows. Praise the Lord. See, now notice, let's, let's drill down. You're like, okay, great. So this is like prosperity gospel. So I'm going to have a lot, full bank account and lots of cars because, you know, I need that stuff. Everyone say, hold on. Okay, the word need there in verse 8, the Greek term means what is necessary for life. Your, your Lord need, knows what you need and what is necessary for your life. Live in the text. See, right now where you're at, God knows every part of everything you need, loved one. He knows your need even better than you do. And here's the cool thing. He even knows when you need it better than you do. Now, side note, this doesn't mean he's going to give what you think you need exactly how you ask. It's like, I want it this way. God's like, "Mm, hold on. But he will give exactly what is right because he's a good and loving father. He will give what is right. He will give what is good and what is most loving for you to get. Oh, how awesome is our God. Amen. Who is like the Lord? He knows. And he knows when you need it. And he will provide in his time and in his accordance with his word but not because of how many words you use or the holy tones that you speak with. How freeing is this from performing in prayer? So if that's how we're not to pray, like unbelievers, like like pagans, then how does Christ tell us we are to pray with a holy distinction? Because he told us what not to do, but we're still left hanging here. What do we do? How does he tell us to to approach him? Well, look at verse 9 to 13. Write this down. Holy distinction means we pray with a reverence for God. It's where it all has to start. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. See, pray like this. Here, it doesn't mean this, loved ones. Use these exact words all the time. So it just becomes some rote thing. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Like like they do at sports stadiums before the game. Everyone take a knee and we'll recite the Lord's Prayer. Don't use empty repetitions. So he's not saying use these exact words all the time. But Jesus is instructing us on the, here it goes again, on the heart posture we are to have and model as we are to follow him. And it starts with a reverence for who God is. The word hallowed there, circle that. Here's what it means. To esteem as highest honor. Who are you trying to esteem in your prayers? Are we trying to esteem the Lord as our highest honor? The the, the one who is holy, the one who is set apart from all else and completely sovereign? See, Jesus says our prayers are to begin in reverence for the character of God. The character of God is the name of God, okay? The character of God. When you say the name of the Lord, the the name of God, it's talking about all the attributes that make up God, that who he is, his holiness, his purity, his righteousness, 
It is seeing God for who he is and declaring his worth. This is why our prayers must start with adoration. Saying, God, hallowed be your name. You are holy. You are righteous. You are sovereign. You are all wise and all powerful. And you know all things. And you are gracious and merciful and loving. You love because you are love. You are gracious. You do gracious things because you are gracious. You see me right now. You know all things. Like it's just, he says, start there. Remember who God is. Give him the adoration. That's why when you come to prayer in this church, when you come to corporate prayer nights, that's why we always will start with adoration. Just seeking God for who he is. We're not making any requests of him right now. It's just hallowed be your name. That's where it all has to start. But is that where we usually will start? We should go right to the ask, don't we? He says, hallow my name. Prayer is about my glory. Because, hey, um, the worth of God, you know, God is worthy and we are needy. Um, the only enduring motivation for prayer, Jesus nails it out of the park right here. If we're going to continue to pray fervently, the only enduring motivation for prayer is that God's worthy to be sought. Otherwise, our prayer will stop when the provision is given. Otherwise, our prayer will stop when we don't think we see any results. The only enduring motivation for prayer, loved ones, is that God is worthy to be sought at all times and in all things. He must have really wanted you to hear that. The only enduring motivation for prayer is that God is worthy to be sought. Why is this so crucial? Because of what you're about to see on the screen. If our prayers are not focused on the glory of God, if it's about what I can get, if it's about expanding my kingdom, here's the reality. We are guilty of idolatry. Done. That's why Jesus says, pray like this, start here. Hallowed be your name. Your name be glorified. Otherwise, we're guilty of idolatry. It's convicting, isn't it? And so often when we approach God, we revere what we can get from him more than God himself. Isn't that right? My health, money, houses, opportunities, jobs, good scores on tests, whatever. Revering it more than him. Opportunities. Ways of serving him even. See, our pursuit in God must always be much more than what he can do for us. And everything else that we pray after this, everything in the Lord's prayer, must flow out of this desire to see his name hallowed. And glorified in and through our lives and in this church. See, and this reminds us that the goal of every prayer is to be God's glory and not our own. So question, before we go to the next part, stop right here. Whose glory are you seeking in your prayers? Let's just get real before the Lord. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let's just get real before the Lord and answer this question. Whose name do you want to see, really, truly want to see hallowed through your prayers? What are you putting ahead of him and need to repent of? Loved ones, he sees it. 
Let's get low. Let's get real before him and say, Lord, teach me to pray. Help me to love you more. And as a next step, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you this week. Loved ones, open your Bibles. Open your Bibles this week and just spend time going through it. Go through the making a list of all the names and attributes and character of God. It'll take you months. But just start writing them down and meditating on his attributes. Make a list and use it when you come to him in prayer. Say, hallowed be your name, God. You are perfect. You have perfection perfected. You are so kind. And it is your kindness that leads me to repentance. You, you God, have, are completely sovereign, have all authority, but you, you long to be my friend. The friendship of the Lord, the psalmist says, is for those who fear him. And I am not worthy. I'm not worthy of that. You are glorious. You will never look in the face of the Lord and be disappointed. Ever. And it makes all these other things we go to him for seem so little in comparison to the glory that is available. So good. See, reverence for God then. We're praying with a holy distinction. We start with a reverence for God and then it leads to this. Of course it does. When we hallow God's name, we gladly and joyfully submit to him. There it is. Submission to God. Look at verse 10. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, circle your, and then circle it again. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, what, what this is, Jesus is instructing us on a posture of surrender and submission to God's will and desires for you. God's will and desires for you and I. Asking him to build his kingdom in and through your life. It's asking him to do, ready? Here, this, and this is a torpedo into our flesh. It's asking God to do what he prefers and how he prefers to do it to be glorified. See, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come so that you're glorified. See that? So that he is glorified in your life and not simply how you would prefer him to do it because it's easier or more comfy for you. And I, it's bringing all we have and our, all we are under the lordship of Christ. My gifts, my abilities, possessions that God's entrusted to us, finances, opportunities, relationships, marriage, family, everything. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's saying your will, your ways, your timing, and your glory if I could sum it up, say it right here. Your kingdom come, God, and my kingdom go. There it is. Your kingdom come in this health situation right now. Whether the healing comes on this side of eternity or not. Your kingdom come and my kingdom go. Whatever you need to do to get the most glory. Because my life is not my own. You created me for your glory. Whether I get married or not, 
your kingdom come and my kingdom go. Whether I get the job, whether I'm top of my class, whatever, your kingdom come. Do what you want to do to get the glory. Whether you give us the children or not, your kingdom come and our kingdom go. Whether you take this child that you've given us, Your kingdom come. And our kingdom go. So whose kingdom do your prayers reflect that you want to see built? In your workplace, in your school, in your relational status, in your marriages, in your finances, in the possessions God entrusted to you. See, James 4, 2 to 3 knocks this out of the park. He says, you ask and you don't receive because you wrongly, you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There it is. My kingdom come. So I'm going to ask God to help me out. God doesn't work like that. Say, he doesn't work like that. He says, you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. It's all about you. Your kingdom, your glory. Where do you need to surrender to your king? Where do you need to surrender your kingdom to Christ's lordship right now? Because here's the truth we need to understand. To insist on our own way is dangerous. To insist on our own way is dangerous. And so often we deceive ourselves into thinking, don't we do this? We deceive ourselves into thinking we see the whole picture, don't we? I know it all. I know how it should go. We deceive ourselves into thinking we see the whole picture um, and that we know what's best. You sure? You want to pull that on the God of the universe? You sure? And here's the beautiful truth. You'll see it on the screen. Be encouraged with this. You and I would want what God wants if we knew what God knows. And one day, we, like right now, we may see in part, but one day we will know in full and we say, Lord Jesus, you were right. Thank you for loving me. Every time. You and I would want what God wants if we knew what God knows. And if we truly believe God is love and he only acts out of that love, then we trust he'll give us what is most loving for us. That's why adoration is so important to start with. Remember who God is and glorify him. Thirdly, we see this holy distinction. Reverence for God starts with a reverence, leads to submission, and now here comes the ask. It leads to dependence on God. Verses 11 to 13. Let's go back to the text. Verse 11, kids, verse 11, eyes in the book, ready? Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, each of these last three requests, now we're in the request, reflects various human needs that we're asking God to meet and expresses our complete dependence, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, our complete dependence on the Lord to meet those needs how he chooses. Notice what he starts with, verse 11. Our daily bread. What does that mean? All that we will need, get this, we're asking him right here, all that we will need at all times, ready, to serve him 
in living out his will for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. That's why we ask for that provision. Say, it is for the Lord's glory, how he knows what I need, and I'm asking for him in his infinite wisdom to give me what I need to serve him faithfully how he wants. To see his glory and his kingdom advance. I'm asking for his strength. I'm asking for the wisdom to know what he wants. I'm asking, yes, even for the material resources to serve him how he desires and knows what I need. The daily bread. Now notice, notice, it all goes back. This is so important. It all goes back to seeing his name hallowed and not our own. Hallowed be your name. Give us our daily bread to see it happen. Give us whatever we need today to see that happen. He's the focus. Now I want you to notice something. Did you, did you see that in the text? Give us this day our Daily bread. I think if we're honest, most of us would like to pray, uh, give us this day our bread for the next year. Right? Give us our annual bread, like today. Maybe the decade's worth of bread today. Right? That's not, everyone say, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. He says, give us this day our daily bread. He's not, we're not asking God to stockpile us for the next month, but only for the needs we have in serving him today. Man, does that ever fly in the face of our culture, huh? You need more. You need, oh, God is somehow leaving you out by not giving you all that. What a lie. What a ruse. He says, give us our daily, are you content? Here's the thing. Let me ask you a question. Why so many of our prayers are just powerless? Because we're not content to live on the daily bread. We want more. More opportunities. More finances. More possessions. Higher status. What? We're just not content to live on the daily bread and we wonder why our prayers are powerless. Jesus never promises the stockpile for the next month. He says, I'll give you what you need for today. Don't worry about tomorrow because I know what you're going to need then too. Are you content to live on his daily bread or do you crave more? It's tough, I know. Because our flesh wants more. Our flesh is all about ourselves. We love ourselves so much. Wow. Secondly, we see daily bread, daily provisions in verse 11. But we also see, look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That's, we're asking him for daily restoration. See, this is a confession of our sin. True prayer should always involve a time of confession. Always. A time of confession. Why? Because it's sin that hinders our intimacy with the Lord. God's like, you want all this stuff? I'm still back here. That needs to be dealt with. That's in the way. It involves a time of confession of our sin so that we may receive the cleansing from the sins that are hindering our fellowship with God and restoring a right relationship with him. Now notice this. Notice, watch this. Highlight this verse again and again and again. Verse 12. We ask God to forgive us. What's the basis? As we forgive 
other people who've sinned against us. Let me ask you a question. Would you want God to forgive you the same way you're forgiving that person who hurt you? Would you want him to forgive you the same way? That person who caused you pain? Or slandered you? Gossiped about you? Would you want God to forgive you like you're forgiving them? See, as we go on to see, this is so crucial. Look at verse 15. Go down a couple of verses in the text. Why is this so important? Actually, start at verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, their sin against you, your heavenly Father will, look at the promise, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, their sin against you, neither will, look at this promise, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, God will withhold forgiveness from us if we withhold it from others. It's so clear. And you say, well, wait a second. I thought it was like, I thought I was saved and forgiven of all my sins through Jesus Christ. And yes, there is a forgiveness at salvation, a, a, a defeating of the power of sin and the penalty of sin in our lives. However, however, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. There's an ongoing cleansing that's needed for sanctification. And the condition of that is if we confess and we forgive others. So let me ask you a question. Two questions, actually. What sin do you need to confess today to receive forgiveness and be restored in your relationship with God? Number two, who do you need to forgive that sinned against you? Who do you need to forgive? This is why Hebrews 12, verse 14, makes it so clear. It says, strive for peace with everyone without which no one will see the glory of God. No one will see the glory of God. God's glory is at stake. Same thing right here. And I want to pause right here, and I want to be very gentle. Because this can be really hard, can't it? I know. It can be really hard to forgive someone who's hurt you, isn't it? And I just want to encourage you with how I was encouraged in this sermon prep this week. Loved one, the Lord sees it. The Lord sees it. He sees the hurt. He sees the gossip. He sees the pain. He sees the abuse. He sees the unfair treatment. And he says, I saw it, loved one. I'm seeing it. And I've kept every one of your tears in a bottle. Everyone. And I sent my son Jesus Christ to earth 
And he lived a perfect life. And he was abused. And he was slandered. And he was hurt. And he was attacked. And his reputation was smeared. But he went to the cross and paid the ultimate penalty for that sin, their sin, your sin, so that he could offer those people who were hurting him forgiveness, which includes you and I. We were his enemies. And he's willing to forgive and love us in the face of it. And to give us what we need to forgive others by the power of the beautiful gospel. And I want to encourage you right now. I, I don't know all the stuff for each one of us. But I do know this based on the authority of God's word. Ready? If we repent and confess. If you've repented of your sin and confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no true healing without him. It won't happen. But if you have repented of your sin and confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, here's some very good news. You have a Savior who can identify with all that pain. You know, one of the big things for me was uh, when we lost uh, our uh, fifth child. I was just so, like, I was so blessed one day in devotions when I was reading about the sacrifice of Christ, and it just hit me. The Lord knows what it's like to lose a child. And he's ready to meet you there. And he's ready to bring healing. Not so you can hang on to bitterness. Not so I can hang on to anger and resentment and unforgiveness. But so that we can cast it on him and he can heal us and offer us the power and give us the power to forgive even in the face of the pain. Even if it never comes back to us. You have a Savior who can identify with that pain. And he's ready to take it and strengthen you to forgive those who've sinned against you. Who do you need to forgive right now? Maybe someone in this room. Get it right. Thirdly, we see this. Dependence on God. Daily bread, daily restoration. And lastly is this, daily deliverance. Verse 13. Look at verse 13. Go back to the text. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's what it means. Lead us not into temptation. It means guard us against succumbing to temptation. Guard us against succumbing to temptation. Now, let's get clear on this. You say, wait a second. God tempts us? God tempts us? Does he tempt us to sin? No, no, no. God is never the one that leads us into temptation. If you're wondering where to find that, just look at James 1, verses 13 to 15. Let no one say, God is tempting me. Okay? God is not tempting us to sin. It means here that even though God doesn't tempt us to sin, watch this, he may allow trials in our lives that expose us to the temptation that could lead us to sin. God may allow trials in our lives, to expose the idols in our lives that would tempt us to sin. Anyone who says the gospel is just this free pass to this carefree life with no sorrow and you're gonna be rich and healthy all the time with no suffering, that is heresy. That is not a true gospel. He says, lead us not into temptation. God will allow suffering and trials to expose those idols. And watch this, watch this, and, and encourage us with this. 
Even when we are tempted, God promises he will provide a way of escape. Even when we're tempted with that, God promises he'll provide a way of escape. And if we choose that way, there's the if, he will deliver us. You you got something to back that up? You bet I do. Write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. When you are tempted, there will be a way of escape. It's there if you want to choose it. It's always there because God said it was. See, and this prayer right here is a declaration that we are completely dependent on the Lord to deliver us from evil. And you could say uh, also in that, the way it's written in the Greek, from the evil one, from Satan himself. Satan, let's just make this clear. Satan's not intimidated by you or me. He's not, he laughs at the plans of man and the so-called power of man, but he shudders when God's people pray. Lead us, protect us from the evil one. And then we are powerless to protect ourselves. Question, are you praying for protection? Are you praying for protection over your mind, over your families, over this church, over your heart, over your purity, over all this? Are you praying for God's protection? You think, I got this. See, loved ones, see it on the screen, we close with this. Jesus has taught us how to pray. And we must imitate him. Jesus has taught us how to pray. Through his coming to earth and living a perfect life of prayer, fervent prayer, and dying on the cross for our sin and rising again, he has now given us the Holy Spirit to all those who repent of their sin and confess him as their Lord and Savior. And he now empowers us by the Spirit to pray with the same fervency, single motivation, God's heart, and a holy distinction for God's glory. This is the prayer right here. Don't stray from it. This is the prayer that God will bless for his glory and how his house shall be known as a house of prayer. Amen? Amen. So right now, first application. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer right now. You're like, oh, I was ready to go. Hold on. We're going to have a time of corporate prayer and put this into practice. So what I want us to do, I want you to get in a group, like four or five people, and we're going to take the next five minutes, and we're going to call on the Lord together. If you don't know someone, go introduce yourself to them. Get in a prayer group, and let's call on you. Here's the prayer points you'll see on the screen. Just put them all up, team. Reverence, following this model. Reverence, praising God for who he is. Open your Bibles and declare the excellencies of our Lord. Start right there. And then submission, asking for his kingdom to come, his will to be done, your life. What's that situation, personally? And then here in the church as we launch into the ministry year. Be specific with any areas you need to submit to him. Dependence for the daily needs you and the church are facing. What are the daily needs that you have to serve the Lord? To serve the Lord. Not to make your life more comfy. For forgiveness of sin in your life. May this be a time of repentance. Just tears of joy and healing there. And forgiving others who sin against you. And for protection for the church. Let's go. We're going to take five minutes. Go ahead. Don't spend a lot of time chattering stuff. Just get to the throne of grace, and then we'll close in worship.